And welcome to another episode of More Than Therapy Podcast. Today's host, uh, today's guest <laughs> is Spencer Bishens, who's going to talk to us about Social Security. Spencer has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a law degree from Florida State University. At the law school, he worked in the private sector for two years prior to joining the Social Security Administration in 2010. He worked at the Appeals Council for almost four years, reviewing thousands of disability decisions for compliance with SSA's complex rules and procedures. He then worked at the hearing level for seven years, where he drafted almost 2,000 decisions for SSA administrative law judges. After working for Social Security Administration for more than 10 years, he wanted to help demystify the complicated disability system. His first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It, explores the obstacles that disability claimants face as they try to access benefits. We welcome today, Mr. Spencer Bishens. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I've been working with people that have been trying to you know, file social security claims since I entered mental health services in North Carolina in the year 2009. I might've had people that would only be able to access the services of the company that I work for because we took Medicaid if they had a disability claim in the works. And then if it, then they have to appeal in order to keep it, in order to keep the mental health services they were receiving with that, we'll help them, you know, try to uh, adjust to whatever was going on in their world alleviate crises that might have been coming on. I've known people that had to file for disability three, four times, maybe even more, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes making it within a certain time frame, sometimes falling outside of that time frame, depending on what was going on. I've seen people that were so debilitated that there's no way that they could have not received SSI, and yet they didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I've seen people that received it and were more able-bodied than I am today. Um, You've seen hundreds, probably thousands of cases in your time working for the Social Security Administration. You've probably seen some of these things where you thought the judge would have said that they're they're eligible for SSA, Social Security. And you've probably seen cases in which you say, oh, they're malingering, they're faking it. And then the judge gave it to them. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Tell me about your experiences regarding Social Security Administration. Yeah, so it's particularly difficult when it comes to mental health cases, right? Because just by the very nature of mental health, medical conditions and impairments, sometimes they're really hard to prove. You can see uh, spondylosis in the spine. You can see uh, an ACL tear or a broken bone on an x-ray or an MRI. So people often, when they think of disability, people will that's the first thing they picture in their mind, right? Is physical disabilities. He or she can't work because the person can't stand, the person can't lift. It's a lot more complicated when we talk about non-visible disabilities and in particular, mental health disorders, but they're really, really common. Sometimes with a physical impairment, sometimes there's no physical impairment, but PTSD, depression, anxiety, and personality disorder. Those are only a few of the mental health disorders the Social Security sees. I'd say those are probably the most common ones. 
yeah, the evidence can be really hard to come by. It's difficult to convince someone that you've got symptoms that no one can see. And it's even more difficult to then convince someone that you can't work because of those symptoms. There's so many different places where someone can just say, I don't believe you. They could say, I don't believe your diagnosis. Well, okay, you have a diagnosis, but I don't believe you have those symptoms. I don't believe anxiety impacts you like that. Oh, okay, it impacts you like that. Well, but I think you can still work. And sometimes even doctors and psychologists have problems figuring that out. So there's no possible way that a lay person without medical training is ever going to be able to have a reasonable opinion on that matter. Um, but as you pointed out, people with mental health impairments, they have to have medical evidence, which means they have to access medical sources, doctors, therapists, counselors, psychologists. But sometimes they even have challenges doing that. Sometimes it's a lack of resources. And sometimes it's just the nature of their impairments, right? If you have agoraphobia and you're afraid to leave your home, how are you supposed to go to a counselor or a therapist to get treatment to help your agoraphobia so that you can go back to work? So a lot of times it's just really difficult for people with mental health impairments to get the care they need to get the evidence they need for their disability claim. And of course, to get the benefits that they deserve. I remember seeing appeal, I mean, like when somebody got their disability letter and it says, oh, you're not disabled, you can do these jobs. Yeah. And it, it, it's like jobs that don't even exist in this, in America anymore. They probably outsource them to South America or something like that. Peanut farmers. Yeah. Like I haven't seen a yeah. single peanut farmer in the last 60 years of my life. <laughs> oh, oh, I've got some better ones for you. Can we just do that for one minute? Yes, please. So, so the document that social security vocational experts use to decide whether someone can work at step five of the sequential evaluation process is something issued by the Department of Labor. It's called the Dictionary of Occupational Titles or DOT, but it hasn't been revised in over 30 years. I think 1991 is the last revision. So some people are told you're not disabled under Social Security's rules because you could be an elevator operator or a telegraph operator. This is one of my personal favorites. You could be a photocopy machine operator. Apparently, they used to have those when like Xeroxes were brand new in the early 80s, I guess. So yeah, people all the time are told you can be a photocopy machine operator. There are X number of jobs in the United States, so you're not disabled. And it doesn't make any sense. I remember reading those documents and I was like, just baffled. I was like, I couldn't, it made me insane. You know what I'm saying? It, it questioned my own mental health stability when I read some of these documents. And I was like, and they said, it's, so many of these jobs within a hundred mile radius. Let me go to Monster. Let me go to Indy. Let me go to here. Let me go to here. I'm not seeing what they're seeing. I don't get it. And the thing is, I used to work for Social Security Administration. Oh, really? No, I work for it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I worked for vocational rehabilitation. Right. Yeah. The place that people might go and says if they can do these jobs, then they're right. eligible. They're not eligible per se. 
or you know if they can do that, if we could find them that type of work, then they'll be okay with getting at least the minimum the minimum minimum income they can get in order to be above the threshold of getting disability. Like if they can at least make seven hundred and fifty a month, which you typically can do if you work so if you work for the, at the VA or do some piecework at the VA, then boom. And then we used to have these things called golden tickets. That was like a, a term that they used. Like if you couldn't work, then that was basically the way to go. Go to Social Security so they can indicate that you can't work or if they can't find a job for you, then you may be able to, you know, be eligible for SSA or Social Security benefits. Yeah. yeah. This is a good point because this highlights one of the problems that people have when they, for of all impairments, physical, mental, doesn't matter what the impairment is. This is one of the situations where people think they're on track to be found disabled by Social Security, but they're not. And there's two places where I have seen this a lot. First is, as you said, people who go to some sort of state agency, uh, some sort of vocational rehabilitation agency, uh, and each state has its own definition for what is disabled in order to receive state-based services. A similar situation happens with veterans who file a connected a service-connected disability claim. That's similar in the sense that it's a veteran saying to the VA, I can't work in the military. And the VA administration, the Veterans Administration, the VA, says, okay, you have a service-connected disability of, let's just say, 100%. But what that means, it's not that you can't work. It means that you can't work in the military. It's service-connected. And so sometimes people will think, oh, I'm 100% disabled, so says the VA. Or in your case, the state of North Carolina says, I can't do certain things. I guess I'm disabled. The problem is Social Security... First of all, it's a federal agency, and it's not the VA. They have their own separate definition of what it means to be disabled. And in order to qualify for Social Security disability benefits specifically, you have to meet Social Security's legal definition of what it means to be disabled. So even if a state agency said you were disabled, or the VA, or the military, or a doctor could say, this person's disabled. This is my patient. This person's disabled and can't work. A lot of people think, well, my doctor said I'm disabled. That's a slam dunk. But it's not because that's a medical determination. But whether someone is disabled, as that term is defined in the law, is a legal determination. In other words, only the judge can decide whether or not you're disabled or not. And they do it based on medical records, right? And they do it based on what doctors and psychologists and even vocational rehabilitation places. They can look at what a vocational rehab specialist says and use that as evidence as to whether the person can work or not. But the judge is the one who makes the ultimate decision. Can you give us a brief synopsis of what the legal definition of this uh, disabled by federal mandates is? Yeah, sure. So Social Security's definition is that you have to have a, a medical impairment, a physical or mental health impairment or a combination, some kind of medical impairment or impairments 
that prevent you from doing substantial gainful activity, I'll come back to that in a moment, for a period of at least 12 continuous months. Substantial gainful activity is a dollar amount per month. In 2022, it's $1,350 per month. And if you can't remember all this, it's in the book, Social Security Disability Revealed, part one, part two, will take you through all of this. So in order to find you disabled, Social Security has to find you have a physical or mental impairment that prevents you from doing substantial gainful activity. In other words, earning $1,350 per month for a period of at least 12 continuous months. And that number does change. In prior years, it was less than 1350 And next year, because of inflation and cost of living adjustments, it will go up. So the SGA amount changes. But that's really, that's the definition. So if you have a medical impairment, but you can still work and earn $1,350 per month, you're not disabled. And that's per month, by the way. So if you're an orthopedic surgeon and you get paid $1,350 per hour and you can do one hour of work that month, you're not disabled. It's not about how many hours you can work. It's not about what type of job you can do. It's about can you earn that much in a month? And if the answer is no, and if that answer remains no, for 12 continuous months, that means 12 months in a row, then you meet Social Security's definition of disability. But as you can imagine, that's a lot of different elements, right? You have to have a medical condition. You have to have evidence of your condition. That condition has to exist for 12 continuous months. That condition or combination of conditions has to prevent you from working. You have to show that you can't work and earn $1,350. There's so many different spots along that path where you could be tripped up where the judge can say, you don't meet that part of the definition of disability, so I'm finding you not disabled under Social Security's very specific legal definition of what it means to be disabled. With those parameters in place, it makes it very, I can see why it makes it very difficult for someone to actually be eligible for Social Security. I mean, a thousand three was that two fifty and some change a week? Yeah, yeah, a few hundred bucks a week, right? A little right. over three hundred bucks a week. There's a it's number a of jobs that don't really take any type of effort that probably could net someone that, and that's probably why it seems like the S Social Security Administration is so stringent regarding their approval. It makes a lot more sense now, but I know yeah. people that have seizures. I have a client now who has seizures on her fourth appeal. There's, I don't think she could make a. I know she can't make a thousand and three a month. The judges don't see it that way. I don't know if the the evidence that they collect the when they send her to their doctors or their psychiatrists or their physical therapists. I don't know what they're seeing that I'm not seeing or that my other doctors aren't seeing. It doesn't yeah, make this, a lot of sense to me. This, this is a great segue to part three and four of the book. Mm -hmm. Part three takes you through the hearing level and talks about who the judges are, who the attorneys are who write the decisions, that was my job, and all the rest of the office staff, and also how the hearing works. But part four is all about evidence. 
And I split up part four into a discussion of visible physical impairments, non-visible physical impairments like seizure disorder, because you can look at someone, you don't know if they have a seizure disorder just by looking at them. And then also mental health impairments, because as we talked about earlier, those require different types of evidence than for physical impairments. But seizure disorder is, is a great example of where people get tripped up when it comes to a disability claim. If you think about how seizures work, you never know when they're going to come on. You never know how long they're going to last. You don't know if you have seizure disorder, you don't know where you're going to be when it happens. For most people who have seizure disorder, it's not at the exact moment they're in their doctor's office in front of their doctor, right? It's at home. Who's there? Family members. Maybe they're even alone. But a lot of times there's a family member observing them. They're in shock. They're scared. They don't know what to do. They call 911. So two months later, when they go to see a neurologist, the neurologist says, well, tell me what happened. And the family member says, I don't know. The person was shaking. Like they can't, they're not experts, right? And so all you have is observational evidence and not really great observational evidence. So there are, for seizure disorders, there is a device that someone can wear, and I've seen medical records where the person puts it on, and guess what happens? They almost never have a seizure while they're wearing it. So that's one of those impairments that people know they have seizures, but if your seizures are coming on once every three months or once every six months, you never know when they're gonna happen. It's really hard to get medical evidence. Right. If you're the judge and you're looking at someone who's complaining of seizure disorders and you can see several emergency room records where the person was brought in after a seizure. But you never actually get a solid diagnosis from a neurologist explaining how long the seizures last, how often they happen. And so if the judge is sitting there thinking, can the person work? I don't really have evidence showing that they can't work. So I guess they don't meet the definition of disability, right? So that that's one of those impairments that's really, really hard to prove. And it's honestly, it's just really because even in 2022, the medical community, I'm not a doctor, I'm not trying to disparage the medical community, but this is just, it's a fact, doesn't really have a great way to capture evidence for something like seizure disorder. And to a large extent, that's also the case with mental health impairments. A lot of the evidence for mental health impairments with a therapist or a counselor or a psychologist, there are some tests that can be run, but a lot of it is conversational, observational. I need, as, as a psychologist, I'm looking at this person, I'm, I'm making a judgment, an educated judgment, but still a judgment as to whether this person can concentrate, how this person's interacting with me. And I'm doing it based on a very short evaluation, which really probably doesn't provide the information the social security judge needs to determine whether that person can do a job 40 hours a week. So when it comes to non- visible physical impairments and mental health impairments. There are some things that claimants can do to increase their chances of getting good evidence in front of a judge 
to help their odds of being approved, but it's still a really difficult process. Indeed, indeed. And thank you for that great, great breakdown. A question. Why are most disability claims initially denied? And why are only around 50% of disability claims eventually approved? Yeah, so as far as the initial level goes, there's a couple different reasons. The first is if you think about how a disability works that prevents someone from working, it, it comes on quite suddenly. Even if it was not a medical impairment that came on suddenly, it the idea of it being disabling is very sudden to someone. They have a medical condition. They might love, live with it for many years, but one day they can't go to work. Yesterday I went to work. Today I can't. So all of a sudden, it just dawns on me, I'm disabled. And at that point, that person is going to probably go then apply for social security disability benefits, but they're not really fully prepared. They don't have years of organized medical records. They may not have any medical records. They're relying on their doctor to keep their medical records. If they do have records, maybe it's a few pieces of paper here and there in a shoebox or in a closet. It's not really a comprehensive, cohesive set of evidence that you would be planning to put in front of someone that you're trying to convince that you're disabled. So a lot of times people think, I can't work, I'll apply for benefits. Of course I can't work. I've got medical conditions. I'm sure Social Security will understand, right? I've been paying for these benefits. I'm entitled, no problem, right? And then over 70% of those initial claims are denied. Why? There wasn't great evidence it wasn't presented well. The person didn't have a representative who knows the definition of disability helping them along. They may not understand that complex definition that we talked about earlier. Maybe they don't understand that they have to prove that they're disabled for a full 12 months. Maybe they don't know that part about showing that they can't do substantial gainful activity. The other thing is, at the state agency level, at that initial level, that claim is handled by someone who works, in your case, let's say for the state of North Carolina. Well, if they approve people for say SSI, those people are probably then going to be on the med state's Medicaid program. And Medicaid is partially funded by the state. So the more people the state of North Carolina approves for SSI, the more people will be on the state's Medicaid program, which is paid for by state taxpayers. See the problem there? They're not really an independent, it's not really, they're not making an independent judgment. If the state employees who are responsible to the state legislature and the governor are trying to save the state's Medicaid program money, the way to save the state's Medicaid program money is to have fewer people on Medicaid. How do you do that? You don't approve SSI claims. So that's one of those things. I talk about it in the book, but that's one of those things that Social Security isn't going to tell you that that's happening, but the statistics clearly show that that's happening. 
Sad. Sad. It's very sad. Because like I said, I know people that need it, like their life depended on it. And then I know people, like I said before, more able-bodied than you or I. Probably could dunk a basketball. Probably could <laughs> get up under somebody's truck and put all what? the pieces back together in the carburetor and all that good stuff. I just want to say one thing on that, though. This is something that I do sometimes here. Because again, when we think the word disability, the first thing we think about is physical capabilities, right? But obviously, as you know, more than a lot of other people, someone could be completely able-bodied. Someone could dunk a basketball. Doesn't mean they can do a full-time work schedule. There are people who are so anxious, they have agoraphobia and can't leave their home, or they can't be around coworkers. Or if a supervisor tried to even minimally supervise them, they just wouldn't be able to handle it from a mental standpoint. Um, I, I've seen a lot of uh, cases uh, of veterans who, I mean, these are some of the most able-bodied people on the planet, right? Infantry soldiers. But they come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they can't even walk around a grocery store without being literally, this is the most, one of the more common things that I would read in medical records in the VA records. I can't even be in a grocery store, a public place that almost all of us need to be in at some point, because I don't know what's going to be around that corner when I turn the aisle. And it's really sad, right? But someone with that degree of PTSD, they could carry a hundred pounds, they could carry another person on their shoulders but they might not be able to do a full-time work schedule because of the mental health difficulties. So yeah, everyone has different impairments and those impairments impact everyone differently. And that's why to social security's credit, they are focusing on the medical records, right? It's not about opinions. It's about, let's look at your medical records. Let's see what kind of diagnosis you have, what kind of treatment you have, what your doctors say about your capabilities. And that was my job, was to look at those medical records, dive into those, and look at the specific. People think, oh, I give Social Security my records. No one's actually looking at those. That could not be further from the truth. Every case, I would see hundreds or sometimes thousands of pages of medical records. And I didn't look at every page, because not every page is necessarily relevant to a disability claim. But we were specially trained on how to look through a record quickly, efficiently, find that evidence that is most relevant to that person's claim, and talk about that specific evidence, treatment date by treatment date, medical opinion by medical opinion in the decision, so that that person would know that their medical record was thoroughly looked at, not only by the judge, but by the person who actually wrote the decision. I've seen several of those discs they were sent to the client and we would review it in my office. We have to have put a code in or whatever and look at this CD where, like you said, you see the whole gambit of the record, all of the records from mental health, all the records from their doctor or their hospital visits, and then whatever visits they had that was, you know, scheduled by, you know, Social Security Administration regarding right. their own view of what's going on. And and that and like I say, it's very detailed. Very, yeah, it's that, everything. It's like, that, whoa, I didn't know that was in there. Ooh, I made a mistake in that note. <laughs> right. That color-coded record a, that goes A, B, C, D, E, F, and they're all different colors, 
the agency employee sees the exact same stuff. So when we go in, that's exactly what we're seeing. And we can pull up every single treatment note, every single x-ray, every visit with a psychologist. So the records are getting a fair look. But again, go back to that definition of disability, right? For a mental health impairment, it can be really, really difficult to prove for a full 12 months that you couldn't do any work that exists in significant numbers of the national economy. And a doctor or a psychologist saying, my, my patient's disabled, that's not enough because again, the judge is the one who makes the decision about what is disabled, right? That's a legal term. So what the judge is looking for in medical records is specific functional limitations. Tell me how long this person can concentrate. Tell me how long this person can be around other people. Tell me if this person can be supervised for a simple, repetitive, unskilled job. Tell me if this person could even get to work. Tell me if this person would need more than normal breaks or if this person would need time by themselves to lie down during the course of a workday. So lots of people have lots of opinions of, well, I don't think that person looks disabled. Ah, that person's cheating the system. But the actual people who make the decisions and who write the decisions at Social Security, they're not guessing and they're not doing it based on how you look. That's based on the actual medical records from your medical sources. And so that's why I included part four in the book to help people think about different places that they could go that they may, might not have necessarily thought of. Things like free and reduced price clinics or seeing a therapist at a community college where there might be some kind of clinic that sees people for free or very low cost. I wanted people to be able to think outside the box so that if they don't have access to Medicaid or maybe Medicaid providers are really busy, maybe they have Medicaid and they can't get in to see a provider, where are some other places you could go to try and get really good medical evidence to give to Social Security to support your disability claim? That's why part four is in the book. Indeed. How does the agency incentivize, incentivize judges to deny claims and how are decision writers, how are they instructed to write denials? I saw this on your, on yeah. your page and I it's thought really, it was a very important point to bring up. Yeah, it's really sad because this is, again, one of those things that Congress and the Social Security Administration, they'll never admit to this, that this is happening, right? But when I was at the Appeals Council, I and I talk about this, of course, in the book in detail, I would do uh, focused reviews. I was put on a team of other attorneys and we were given like, say a, a sample of like a hundred cases that were all favorable. And we were told, okay, this judge has been issuing favorable decisions. Here's a hundred favorable decisions, meaning the person was approved for benefits. Tell us what's wrong with this. Why is this judge approving so many claims? Well, if you think about that, if you're given only favorable decisions and told, tell us what's wrong, you're, the only thing you could possibly come up with is saying that a judge is doing something wrong by issuing favorable decisions. Uh, I don't remember ever being put on a focused review where we were given a judge who had 100 unfavorable decisions. 
or we were told this judge seems to be denying too many cases, too many cases. Let's figure out why. It seemed to always be either offices or judges that had really high pay rates. And we would be tasked with writing a report explaining why that was happening. So you can see that it's it's really one-sided. And the other thing that I uh, observed when I was there is judges with high pay rates. So a high pay rate may be you're approving 80 or 90% of your cases. Well, that's pretty high if the average judge is more like 45 to 50%, right? Judges with really high pay rates will sometimes be given extra training. You can see that that's not a neutral thing, right? If only the judges who are paying a lot of cases are being given extra training to help them better understand how to apply the agency's regulations, that's very clearly the Social Security Administration trying to incentivize judges to approve fewer claims. Um, so it's really sad. It's unfortunate because you would hope that each claimant is an individual person and they only care about one case, theirs. That's all they care about. And they wait a year for a hearing and they get an hour with this judge and their hope is that they can come in and tell their story and convince this judge that they're disabled. And what they're facing is a judge that did 49 other cases that month because they do about 50 cases per month, is tired, is going on vacation in a couple weeks, just wants to get things moving they have uh, a staff of attorneys who are told to review 2,000 pages of records and write a decision in the next seven hours. And uh, so what those claimants are dealing with is an office that isn't prioritizing them, right? An office that is not treating that case and that evidence as importantly as as that claimant would want to happen and uh and so you the other part of your question is how decision writers are instructed to write denials the judge will hold the hearing write a one-page set of instructions and say here deny the case and there will be often be times when i would have to go back to the judge and say wait a second judge there's three medical opinions and they all suggest this person can't work you want me to deny this claim? I don't understand how you want me to write a denial when all of the medical evidence suggests this person can't work. And sometimes they'd be able to convince the judge to change a decision. And of course, the claimant would never know that, right? They get a favorable decision. They don't know that the judge had originally said, deny it, and that someone went to bat for them behind the scenes and, and got that decision changed. Um, but for a lot of cases, the, the judges, like I said, they do a lot of hearings. They move really fast. They might think about it and say, I appreciate your input, write a denial. And then it's the job of the attorney, that was my job, to then go write a decision denying benefits, even if the medical evidence suggests that person should be approved. That is not an easy thing to do. And ultimately, that just wore me, wore me down after so many unfavorable decisions. 
where I would look at the evidence and think, I don't understand how this is a denial. This makes no sense. I just, I, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I, I understand why the judges are doing it, right? The agency is pushing them to deny more cases. And so they're denying more cases and then leaving it up to a staff attorney to have to do the dirty work and actually write the denial. It's, it's really an unpleasant system and it's not fair to that individual claimant who all they wanted was, was their a fair hearing, right? They wanted their day in court. And so when they read my book, social security disability revealed, and in part three, they learn that it's quite possible that judge had decided to deny that claim before the hearing even began. That's gotta be really disheartening. Hmm. I'm not saying I should have scheduled you in the daytime. You're making me depressed. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying this happens all the time. There's a lot of fair judges. There's judges with fairly high pay rates. I wrote decisions for a couple judges who had a really high degree of sympathy. And I could tell that they would read medical records and they would say, I have no reason not to believe this doctor. And then the next person, because everyone's got medical records, all the claimants have medical records suggesting they have all kinds of medical impairments. So when you get a judge who says, I have no reason to disbelieve this. Next case, I have no reason to disbelieve this. Next case, the doctor says she can't stand or sit. Well, I'm not a doctor. I'm going to go with what the doctor says. Those cases are really easy to write, as you can imagine, because I just kind of go with the evidence. So it's not certainly not all judges, but it's a lot of judges. And it's because there's a systemic issue where Social Security wants to keep that approval rate from getting too high. I've had clients, like I said, I've been doing this since about 2009 when I moved to North Carolina. That, you know, they would appeal, appeal, appeal. Then they would get a representative. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they got approved. How can having a representative improve an applicant's chance of success? In one word, tremendously. Uh, so the two major themes of the book are, one, get a representative. This isn't an advertisement for me. I'm not a claimant representative. I don't take cases. I'm not trying to get you to hire me. But you should hire a representative, ideally someone who represents clients in your city or town or in a major city or town near you. There's over 200 hearing offices across the United States. There's probably one somewhat close to you. And almost every here, town that has a hearing office will have several local representatives. And that's who you want to go sit down and talk to, present your case, present your evidence, and get that person to help you. It's a tremendous help because they know the law. They know the judges. They know how the hearing office operates. They know the nuances of the regulations. For example, there's a rule that says if you don't have evidence in at least five business days before the hearing, the judge doesn't have to consider it at all. So if you're on your own and you think, oh, I'll just bring my evidence to my hearing with me. Well, the judge may just say, I'm not going to consider any of that. But the representatives know the nuances of these rules. And so they know how to best present your case.
But the other thing is you can't just say, I got a guy. I got a guy helping me out. You can't just rely on your representative. An educated claimant has the best chance of being approved. So yes, you want to have a representative and they have their role in the process. And I talk about this in the book, but it is the claimant's responsibility to the greatest extent that they can to become educated on the process. What's the difference between Title II and Title XVI? What are the five steps that the judge will use to decide the claim? When I get to the hearing, who's going to talk and in what order? And who is a vocational expert? You want to know these things before you get there. It's not really the time to DIY or to kind of like wing it and learn as you go. It's too important. So the best things you can do are read this book because it will explain everything to you in advance and also have a social security disability representative who is a professional, usually an attorney, doesn't need to be. There are a lot of good non-attorney representatives and that person can help you put everything together and work with you, not for you, with you to present your case in the best light possible to give yourself the best chance of success. I must ask you as an attorney, yeah. why are you giving people this great resource, social security disability revealed? Why it's so hard to access benefits and what you can do about it? Why would you give people these tools to success or at least giving them a resource in which they can better manifest their desire, their goal of getting SSA benefits for their disability, whether it's mental health or physical. Yeah. So when I left Social Security, I wanted to do several things in a book, and it took me a little while to figure out how to do it. I wanted to say, here's what the law is. Just a very plain language, basic guide. Here's the law. But then I also wanted to give some tips and explain things that you're not going to necessarily find if you just use a search engine and look up the law. I also wanted to provide a little bit of the insider information that I had learned during my time at Social Security that Social Security is not going to tell anyone. So you're not going to find this on any website. Uh, and I wanted to put this all together. I also wanted to provide information on the appeals process because nobody tells you how to appeal nobody asks people want to win the first time they don't want to know how to appeal so i wanted that in the book i wanted to provide some information on how the system could be improved and ultimately i also wanted to put a glossary in the back of the book not a dictionary definition glossary but a plain language glossary and i wanted to put that all together and that's what i did and so i'm very proud of this because it can be used for educational purposes. It can be used by a claimant or a friend or a family member or a vocational rehabilitation specialist such as yourself to understand what your clients are going through. It can be used because I need to know how to file. It can be used if oh, I got a hearing coming up, I got to know what's going to happen. It can be used by people who have already lost and they need to know how to appeal. It could also be used by someone who says, I got a hearing nine months from now. I'm just going to put this 
put this on the bookshelf. I'll come back to it in eight months, three weeks, and five days, and I'll read it then. So it's educational. It's reference material. It's for people who aren't the claimant, but who are support surrounding uh, the claimant, who, who want to understand what the claimant's going through and help the claimant. And that's particularly important for people who have mental health impairments, who may not necessarily be able to advocate for themselves. So I, I wanted to get this all into one resource so that, you know, if you go onto the internet and you look for a social security disability book, there's lots of different books and they have all kinds of different angles and it's just too much. People don't have that much time. They don't have that much energy. They've got impairments that might prevent concentration. I wanted it to be in one book that you could read, that a loved one could read. I wanted it to be simple. And it's not a simple system, right? So I wanted to take a really complicated process and a really dense topic and try to make it as simple as possible. And like I said, I don't take cases. I'm not a social security disability representative. I don't represent claimants, but there are a lot of really good representatives out there. And I didn't write this book to take away their business. Like I said, the two main themes of this book are read this book and educate yourself. But once you've done that, hire a representative. And I talk in the book about how to find a representative, how they get paid, if you have some kind of problem and you need to fire your representative and find a new one, that's all in here. So it's not the reason to answer your question. The reason I wrote it is I wanted there to be one place where everyone around the social security disability system can go one resource that you can read and understand everything you need to know, and then go hire a representative if you're a claimant and you'll be that representative's most educated client. Indeed, indeed. So thank you, Mr. Spencer Bishens, regarding uh, learning more about social security disability and learning more about your book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It. Um, can you give the listening and watching audience, you know, any words of advice or final words before we close out this episode? Yeah, some, some words of encouragement. It's a really complicated system and it's designed to have the deck stacked against the claimant. It's not just you. If you think, oh, why am I having so much trouble? Why, am, why is it so hard for me? It's not just you. It's everybody. The system's designed that way. You can tell that just by listening to the legal definition of disability. It's meant to be really difficult, which is terrible because these are American citizens. They're paying into the system their entire working lives. And then they go to get a benefit that they thought they were entitled to. That's why people call it an entitlement. And they find out apparently they're not automatically entitled to it. So it's tough. There's going to be a lot that it, other people are asking of you, whether it's seeing treatment, getting more treatment, filling in the gaps of your medical record, get more records, get medical opinions, call that doctor, sign this form, whatever. But a representative can help you with a lot of that. And just 
knowing how the process works, I think will be really comforting to people because they'll understand, okay, yeah, the deck is stacked against me. This is going to be an uphill battle, but at least now I know the steps to get there. I know it's first. I know if I'm denied, I know that I can appeal. And then when I get that second denial, I don't have to be stressed out. I can expect that that's coming. Most people are denied twice and have to go to a hearing with a judge. I know how the hearing works. So knowledge is power, right? And empowerment for the claimant. So read the book. Once you're comfortable and you understand how the process works, hire a representative, sit down and talk to that person and go from there. And that's wherever you are in the process. Even if you've been denied and you're now in the appellate stage, there are representatives who will take your case at the appeal stage. So I don't want to say don't worry because it's a complicated process. And a lot of people worry. For some people, that's just one of their symptoms. But there is help out there. There are people who want to help you navigate the process. And of course, I cannot guarantee an outcome. No one can guarantee a favorable outcome. So I'm not guaranteeing that you'll get benefits. But what I'm saying is this book and a knowledgeable, qualified representative are your best chances of success. Indeed, indeed. Thank you. That's Mr. Stephen, Mr. Spencer. Bishens. Spencer um, Bishens. Spencer Bishens, who's a an attorney uh, operating out of Florida and Washington State, correct? That's right, out of Washington State, Tacoma, Washington. And um, he got this great book called A Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It. Available on Amazon. Um, I like it on Scribd. Scribd is one of my favorite websites. Yeah, and, and Apple and Barnes Noble. Apple, and Barnes you can and also and you can also tell your local library that you want them to get mm -hmm. it, and they can get it in ebook or in paperback through the Ingram catalog. Mm -hmm. So you just go to that website on the screen, BishonsPublishing.com. It's got links to all the different places to buy the book to make it easy. Indeed, indeed. And that concludes another episode of the Motor Therapy Podcast. If you haven't already. Please subscribe to the Motor Therapy Podcast wherever you push play to listen to your favorite podcasts. Be well and be great.